Well, good morning to all of you. Are we on with our sound? You can hear it? Okay, wonderful. We are very delighted. We're very blessed and very honored to be able to be here this morning with all of you. We rejoice in what God is doing here in your church, how this as a church plant has in every way been marked by God's blessings. We hear of the good news, even as we've been up at Faith Bible Church uh, last week, uh, just hearing from them what God is doing here in your midst and your fellowship. We're in a similar situation. We're in a church plant also, so we understand. We understand what it's like to be in an environment where people all around are in desperate need of Christ, desperate need of the gospel. Of course, we see that that's why God has put us here at this time in this world to be his representatives. We're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning. I want to bring greetings as well from our church planning team there in Kladno and from our small little church. Uh, they are in every way uh, excited for what God is doing here. And I would want to, on their behalf, also express our thanks to you for your kinship in the gospel, for your partnership, particularly as that's been expressed in your sending the church, uh, the uh, short-term team last summer. Uh, they are in every way choice servants of the Lord. And we were so blessed to have them. We were personally refreshed in our own lives. And our ministry was greatly encouraged as they moved into ministry, as they loved others in Christ. And we'd like you to send them all back with more. Okay? We're very thankful to you for sending them to minister with us. Well, this morning I rejoice to share with you that God is working there in Kladno. That's the name of our little city in the Czech Republic. It's been just a year since last November that we've been at the church plant. And God is showing himself, as he always does, faithful to honor his word, to bless its proclamation. And just this last year, God has drawn to himself five who were former atheists now that are his worshipers. And that's a great thing for us, to have those that are so full of lies and so confused as to what really even is reality, what is truth, come to understand what Christ has done for them and come to embrace the cross and be his followers. So I want to testify to you that God is working, God is answering your prayers there in Kladno, and we thank him for that. It's amazing. It's here, the year 2003. It's really an amazing thing that we, are, we have already started a new year. As we look to the future, this can mean a lot of different things to each of us. I want to ask you, as you look ahead to this new year, what comes to mind? What fills your heart? What are your desires? What are your plans? What are your aspirations? Some of you have probably, probably already begun to write out goals, dreams, what you want to see God do in your life this year. Others, maybe not yet. If you haven't yet, it's not too late. You can always begin. But I want to ask the question at the outset this morning, what is it that you are desperately desiring to see God do in your life this year, 2003? What is your ambition what are you saying, God, I'd like to see this happen this year? And for some of you that are studying as students, it may be to really excel there in your classes, to do well, to show yourself to be one who, as a Christian, gives the best for Christ. Maybe improving even your GPA. Maybe for those that just hang in there till summer, that would be a desire for you. Others this morning that are already in the workplace or maybe entering the workforce, maybe that fills your mind. Thinking about that particular area and desiring to see God really work there. Maybe some of you are hoping for a promotion 
or maybe it's a really good a job that you've been preparing for there in college and as you're getting ready to graduate. Look forward to how God will bring that about. There are some here this morning who are wondering, God, I feel ready. I feel like I, you know, I would, I would like to have a companion, a life partner. Maybe that's on your mind as you look toward the new year. Who it is that God would have for you, that Mr. or Mrs. Wright, if you will. So maybe that is what for you would make this new year especially meaningful to have that particular desire fulfilled. Now let's think about it. All those things, school, work, relationships, all those things God has given to us. God has given those as His blessings to each of us as His own. But I want to encourage us this morning at the very outset to think about this. Though God has given those to us, God has intended, God has designed for us to have one surpassing desire and pursuit that will be far more foundational and far more fundamental than every one of those other things or whatever else is in your mind as you look forward to the new year. And it is this. God would desire for us to be very shaken by the reality that the all-consuming pursuit, preoccupation, and pleasure that He desires to be in our hearts as we look toward the new year is to be Christ Himself. Christ Himself. I trust that you'll have your Bible this morning with you. Please turn with me and we're going to see what God tells us about having the all-consuming passion and ambition to please Christ from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we're going to see how God calls each and every one of us to actively embrace as the dominating passion of life, of life Christ alone. Look with me at verse 9. We read it earlier, but I want us to revisit that. Paul says, Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be, what does it say? Go ahead, please. Pleasing to Him. This is what drove Paul. This is what Paul wanted more than anything else. And I believe, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what God wants for each of us individually and for each of you corporately as a church this morning. This supreme passion and desire to be pleasing to Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write at the top of your paper, an ambition to please Christ. I want us to take a more closer look at what this means. What is this idea of an ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to Him? You know, maybe when you hear the word ambition... Different strange thoughts come to mind. Maybe even negative thoughts of a thirst for wealth or a longing for power, control. But that's not at all the idea here. The word ambition actually is a very, very positive term that's used. It's a compound word. It takes two words and puts them together. Philo and Timisthai. Those words are the words we get two names from. Phil and Tim. The word philo you're familiar with, certainly. It means to love or to be fond of something. And the second, Timé, it describes what is supremely valuable, what is esteemed. So what Paul is saying here, at the very beginning, he's saying that what he desires, more than anything else, his supreme love is Jesus Christ. That is what is of supreme, infinite value for him. 
I want to ask you this morning, is that you? Can you say more than anything else in all of life, my supreme driving passion desire is what is of infinite value, Christ alone. You know, it's the interesting thing in our Christian lives, what happens? As we've been saved for some time, we continue to articulate the commitments of a Christian many times. I love Christ. I want to live for Him. I want to please Him. But you know what happens? Sometimes as we begin to continue to say those things, the passion can grow cold. See, the words often don't stop. We still talk the same and say the same thing. But somehow, in the deepest core of the heart, there's not that driving longing matching how we live out that. This morning, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at how God wants our highest ambition and, if we could say it this way, our ultimate life resolution that should pulsate through every fiber of our being to be nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself. This should be the paramount concern for every one of us that should surpass all of our dreams and desires, all of our friendships and families, and all of our possessions and plans. Jesus Christ. And you know, it's incredible that nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else than an active and radical commitment to live in, living acceptably to Jesus Christ will be honoring to God and will give us the incredible joy that He's designed for us as His, belief, as His children. You know, the wonderful thing is this. When we embrace or re-embrace or more fully understand what this means, what God is calling us to more actively, to be fully consumed with that surpassing ambition of Christ, that everything else in our lives, our relationships, our families, our marriages, our church, all those things will even more fully bring glory to God. You know, so it's appropriate. I can't think of any more fitting theme or topic as we look to the new year than getting back to the very foundational commitments, actually the very foundational commitment, singular, to Christ Himself. You know, if you stop and think about it, a person cannot be a Christian that does not want to please Christ. That's impossible. Because to be a Christian means you prize Christ. And yet at the same time, there must always be that growing, deepening longing to do that. We were reminded earlier in our time of worship, Paul in Philippians 3 said that, that he longed to know Christ. He said that late in his ministry, late in his Christian life. We never outgrow that. And we're going to see this morning, working off that desire, if that is our desire, and oh God may it be that that is our desire, what do we do? How do we grow? How does that actually increase even more deeply? And we're going to be looking in this chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, 9-21, at three very pivotal truths that will strengthen that desire to please Christ. Very simply, we're going to look at, number one, the coming evaluation in verses 9-13. Then the constraining love, verses 14-17. And then the compelling ministry in verses 18-21. through Well, why should we long to even more deeply please Christ? Point one, the coming evaluation. Look with me again at verse 10 and see what it says there. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, you all have been taught very well. I know that from Pastor James. And you know that as we look to the future, there are two coming judgments. Two. One coming judgment, the great white throne, is for the unbeliever to stand before God and at that point they will be judged based upon what they did with Christ. All those, of course, the unbelievers that have rejected Christ will forever be separated from Christ. That's the great white throne that the unbelievers await. But the second judgment is for us as believers, the Bema Seat Judgment. And the Bema Seat Judgment is what Paul is talking about here when he says, for we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What is that? What happens there? What is this like? What is it like? The Bema Seat Judgment in the New Testament era, actually the Bema Seat, let's just stay with that now, the judgment comes from this idea of the Bema Seat. This was a place that every athlete, every Greek athlete was very familiar with. Actually, it was what motivated them. It was what caused them even to go through the rigorous trainings to punish their bodies because they looked forward to the Bema Seat. It was a place of reward for the victors after the race where they received their prize. It was the reason as well why the athletes would push themselves through incredible grueling at an incredibly grueling pace in the race. Why? The Bema Seat. They looked forward to what would come after the race. They looked forward to the reward that they would receive. Christian, Paul says here, this should motivate us. Not just for the athletes there in, Greek, in Greece, but for believers today. A far greater Bema Seat. That following this life here on earth, we too will face a place for reward not for judgment. And this should motivate us in how we live. Well, if we're going to stand before Christ at this judgment seat, we better think more about, let's see if we can understand what is going to happen there. How will we be rewarded? Let's look, and because in verse 10, it's very specific. It tells us what will take place at the Bema Seat judgment. Look, first of all, at the words, we must all appear. These words speak of universality. Everybody, every Christian that proclaims to know and actually truly does know Christ will be at this Bema Seat judgment. Then the following phrase, before the judgment seat of Christ. That speaks of the one who will be our impartial judge. Who will we stand before? Christ Himself. We will stand before Him and He is the one who will reward us based upon what we have done. The next phrase, that each one. That speaks of an individuality. Christians, in the future of the judgment, we will not be dealt with collectively. It won't be, okay, Cornerstone Church, please come forward. It's your turn in the judgment. Not at all. It says that each one. This means that every single one of us here this morning that knows and loves Christ will stand face to face, will look eye to eye in the face of Christ to be rewarded, and to have our lives assessed before Him. The following words tell us more. It says that they may be recompensed for their deeds in the body. What does this tell us here? It tells us why there's going to be that judgment. It reassures us that there's not a judgment coming for us in which there will be punishment. No, it's a judgment for reward. Everything that we have ever done on earth 
in Christ's strength and for His glory at this judgment will be rewarded. Everything. Well, maybe you say, okay, I know there's a coming judgment. I know that I'm going to be assessed. But how is Christ going to judge me? On what basis? What things will He reward? What things will He not reward? Look farther in verse 10. It tells us. It says, according to what He has done. Now notice, whether He has, whether good or bad. Now this gives us the standard. The standard that God will use in judging, and Christ will use in judging us. The bad speaks of those things that are worthless, that are good for nothing. This is like the 1 Corinthians 3 idea, the, the wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed. But then those things that are of eternal value, the good, will receive eternal reward. So Christ will separate out those things that are worthless, they will burn up. Those things that have been done for His praise and glory will be rewarded for all eternity. This is amazing. This kind of judgment is real. It's a real thing that we will face. And Paul says that this is what motivated him and how he lived out his Christian life and in his ministry. Now think about it this morning, Christian. Everything that we have ever done as believers will be evaluated. Everything. Every thought we've had, every word we've spoken, every action we've done. Everything we've done in ministry, how we've used our spiritual gifts, everything will be evaluated in this coming judgment. The amazing thing is this, is that the more real that this is to us today, the more fully we can live out for Christ, as this propels us in living out a life that glorifies Him. Why? Because it does make a difference. How we live today makes a difference for the eternal tomorrow as we spend with Christ forever. Now, this isn't a judgment where we try to lay up things for ourselves, but it's for the, cra- for the praise of Christ's own glory. So we can more fully manifest His glory for eternity based upon how we have lived today. There's a coming evaluation, and that should motivate us. In the Czech Republic, I teach five hours a week, in a little high school, and actually not a little one, a large for the Czech Republic, a large high school in our town. And the amazing thing is, is in that high school, like in every other public school, there's a very unique thing that affects the high school seniors. They know that at the end of the year, they will have to give an account for everything they've studied for the four years. Everything. They will stand before a panel of teachers who will ask them question after question of what they've learned in the whole process. Let me tell you, this motivates the students in how they study. Because I teach seniors. They're very serious. Sports goes on the back burner. Relationships, hobbies, everything is of far less importance than that coming evaluation. They take it seriously. Why? Because they know how they study. Now, in preparation for the evaluation, is of critical importance if they're going to do well on that coming evaluation. You know what? Praise God that our living today is not for whether or not we'll be saved in the future. Our living today for Christ is why? So that we can glorify Him, so that we can be rewarded in eternity. That should drive us, that should motivate us as we look forward to that coming day. You know what? The implications of that future judgment should often be in our minds. I believe the Apostle Paul thought about that. Yes, I will stand before Christ. Yes, he will look at my life. He will evaluate my life and I will give account 
for how I have lived today. Christian, you show me a person who is sold out for Christ today. And I will show you a person who understands this coming judgment. Who understands it does make a difference. It is important how we live today and how it will affect that coming day when we stand before Christ. And may God help us. May God deliver us from thinking and acting as if it really doesn't matter how we live because we're already saved. May God cause us to realize that it does make a difference in living all out for Christ. You know, we almost daily in the Czech Republic are talking with atheists. And we tell the atheists, you know what? We're sorry, but what you've been told for all these years about after death there's nothing, that's a lie. That's not true. Because God tells us that there is a coming future judgment. We tell the atheists that they will stand before God and have to answer for what they've done with Christ. That's the message we bring to the atheists. But Christian, you know what? We too as believers need to be reminded of something also, don't we? That we also must give an account. We also have a a coming day of evaluation in which God will evaluate our lives. Let this propel us. Let this motivate us in living for Christ. You know what? Think about this last year. Think about how have you invested your energies, your time, your talent, how you've really laid up eternal reward, how you have prepared for that coming judgment. I bless God because I'm certain that many of you can say, yes, there has been much in my life that has really been invested for that coming judgment. There There are others this morning who would say, you know what? There's a great sense of loss. Wasted time. Missing out on ministry opportunity. Failing to be what God has called me to be as His ambassador. You know what? This is the time that God would call us to be reminded. To be encouraged. To be motivated. To prepare and to live in light of that day when we will stand before Christ. That's the first point. That's the first point that should motivate us. The coming evaluation. What else? What else does Paul say should motivate us to please Christ even more. Point number two, the constraining love. The constraining love. Look at verse 14 with me, please. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Let's stop right there. We'll go on a little bit. The love of Christ controls us. This is the second motivation that moved Paul along in living for Christ. Have you ever wondered, what was it that made the Apostle Paul what he was? Why was he so recklessly abandoned to the plan and glory of Christ? How could he sacrifice? How could he go through incredible persecution, being beaten, being shipwrecked, being without food, being without sleep, constantly? What pushed him along? He tells us right here, the love of Christ. He says, the love of Christ compels, controls me. Let's think about what he's saying. Whose love is he referring to? Whose love is it? The love of Christ. Was it Christ's love for Paul? Or was it Paul's love for Christ? Okay, let's see some hands here, okay? How many of you would say, you know, I think it's Christ's love for Paul. Raise your hands, please. You've got to vote. Come on. Don't be bashful. Great. Those that win get a free ticket to the Czech Republic, okay? (laughs) Just kidding. How many of you would say, no, I think it was Paul's heart of love for Christ? Raise your hands. Now, some of you didn't vote. That's okay. Actually, you're right. It was Paul's understanding of Christ's love for him. Now, how do we know that? Actually, in the original, and even in English, it can mean both grammatically. 
But the context, as it often does, is very, very powerfully clear in helping us with this issue. With this issue. Look at verses 14 and 15. It makes it very clear. In verse 14, he says, Having concluded this, that one died for all. There it is. There is the love of Christ, His death for all. In verse 15, it says again, He died for all. And again, farther down, For him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying what motivates him supremely is this issue of Christ's love for him. The ultimate love in him giving his life is what caused Paul to respond with a life of an ambition to please him. You know what's clear here? That in the deepest part of Paul's heart, what motivated him, what constrained him, was his understanding of what Christ had done for him. What Christ had done. He was captivated by the love of Christ. The same captivation we see in 1 John 3, as it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we should be what? That we should be called children of God. The great love. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. You know what? I'm sure most all of you have memorized that verse in Romans 5. Have you ever noticed though the verb? It's not a past, but God demonstrated. It doesn't say that. It says, but God demonstrates. Why? Because God continues to point back to the cross of Christ and says, look, this is my love for you. This is my love for you. Well, what's the point? The point is that Christ's love, in a continuing way, is what ought to cause us to have Christ as our all-compelling ambition, His love for us. You know, may it be to God that we wouldn't lose a sense of what this means. As we sing our praises to God, as we encourage others in fellowship, that we would never stop to be amazed and marvel at the wonder of what that meant. When Christ, God Himself, gave Himself as a man to die for us. Why? Why was it then, think about this, a basic sensible question, why did Christ die for us? Why did He? You say, simply, to pay for our sins. That's right. But you know what? More completely, to pay for our sins, yes, but also, verse 15 tells us of something related to that, but even more. And He died for all, that they who live, here it is, should no longer do what? Live for themselves. Christian, what is Paul saying here? What is God communicating? It is this. Christ gave Himself from the cross, yes, to save us, and yet with that more fully, to deliver us from self-love. That's why Christ died. So that he would, to our greatest love would be Christ Himself. Let me ask you the question this morning. Does that love for you continue to captivate your heart? Does it? If it does, then it's unthinkable that anything else, that anything else in our lives, that anything, any other pursuit would be central in our thinking. That there be no sense of self-gratification as we look forward to this coming year. But that it would be Christ alone. It's the Galatians 2, verse 20 realization. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but what? Say it. But Christ 
lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who did what? Who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's the understanding. That's the deep grasp of the fact that not only did he die for me, but that death daily demands that I live full out for him. They're in the Czech Republican club, no, those five people I told you about, the new believers, the former atheists, they're getting ready to be baptized. And we are really exciting, excited. Because, of course, that baptism marks identification with Christ, yes. But what it shows is this. It shows that every single one of those former rebels against God has come to understand what Christ personally did for them. And they're going to make a pledge publicly that because of my understanding of what Christ has done, that all my life will be lived for Him. All my life. One of the girls, her name is Lutska. God radically transformed her her life. It took four years. She came to four summer camps. And at the beginning, she said, no, this is just, I'm not interested at all in this stuff. She scoffed the gospel. About four months ago, she came to understand. God's Spirit opened her blinded eyes and she repented of her sins. She became a Christian. She was dating this guy. He came back after a trip. He was in the U.S. She told him soon, shortly after he got back, she said, Mikhail, i got to tell you something. I have a different life. She says, now I have a higher love. Lutzka understands, doesn't she? Lutzka understands that her supreme love in life is the one who loved her first, and that is Christ. Because of that, she's compelled to live in obedience to Him. We've seen two things so far. Two things that ought to motivate us this new year. First of all, the coming evaluation, when we stand before Christ to be rewarded. The second thing we've seen is the captivating love of Christ for us. Well, in our desire to please Christ, in that passion to be all consumed with Him, we are compelled to do something. We have to do something with that. We are compelled to proclaim Him, to make Him known. Point three, the compelling ministry. The compelling ministry. And this is where the, the motivation of, his coming, of the coming judgment and Christ's love moves into action and are living up for Christ. Verse 18. Verse 18 tells us, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry that God says that every one of us here today has been given when we became a child of his. Reconciliation. We don't use that word often nowadays, but what does it mean? What comes to mind when you hear the word reconciliation? The fundamental meaning is actually the word change. It speaks of a radical change that an offended and holy God has made with his rebel creatures that were once filled with hatred against him. Reconciliation is the major change from those that were enemies to those that have become God's friends. It says that he has reconciled us to himself. In other words, God has made each of us who are enemies to be his personal friends. Now, verse 18 also tells us the process, how that happened, how we actually accomplished that. It says, God reconciled us to himself 
Through who? Through Christ. Christ is God's divine agent for reconciliation. Verse 19 also tells us, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now think about that. We know that God sent Christ, the divine agent of reconciliation. But what happened after Christ had victory over the grave and ascended back into heaven? How was it that God continued that ministry of reconciliation when Christ was no longer here on the earth? What was God's plan? God's plan was nothing else than you and I, His own children, that would continue the work that Christ had begun. That's an incredible thought. God had no other plan, no plan B, to continue the work of salvation that Christ actually made possible through His work on the cross. That tells us something amazing. That God entrusted to us an incredible calling, an incredible privilege of being those that continue the work that Christ began on the cross of reconciliation. What that says is this. God is looking to us, God is counting on us to accomplish and to fulfill the work that is given to us to do. That's an astounding thought that we each are ministers of that reconciliation. And Paul drives this home in verse 20. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And notice as it says, As though God were entreating through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. Now, what does an ambassador do? What is the function of an ambassador? In the Czech Republic, we've become, actually been able to appreciate this more in having actually the ambassador to the Czech Republic from the U.S. come and deliver messages. Actually, it's interesting that this particular man is not particularly impressive. He's just an average guy. Like, I don't even remember his name. What I remember and what the Czech people remember is what he says. See, the person isn't particularly important apart from the role that he fulfills. The message that he brings is what makes his job so critical and so important. He represents one and he communicates that message to those that he comes to. That's where he gets his authority. You know what? For us here this morning, we might feel ordinary. We might feel insignificant. We might feel weak as just normal Christians. You know what? That's okay. Because an ambassador is simply one who is to represent, represent somebody else. What gives us tremendous significance is the fact that we are those who personally represent Christ to those we speak to. We should have a sense of incredible a magnitude of the ministry that God has given to us. It's a powerful thing that we truly represent the living God. Now, let's think about this. Let's be real practical with this this morning. If for some of you that are in school, taking classes on the campus, commuting, you first and foremost are not a student. God says, no, you are an ambassador. You're one who represents Christ, who happens to be at this time a student at that school. The central issue that God wants you to be impressed with is that you must speak for Him where He has you now on that campus. That is the job He's, been, he's given you to do. Some of you might be 
were in the workplace already, might be working. Whatever your job is, whatever in the in office, wherever, fast food, you name it. God says, you know what? What I have called you to do there is not only to do your job, but to do the job I've given you and to represent Christ. God has called each of us to be speaking forth the message as an ambassador. See, the most tragic thing that an ambassador can ever do is to be silent, to not speak forth the message that he's been given to, to, to share. God says we must speak forth that gospel. I know there are some of you that are actually entering into the medical field. I know um, Thomas is. A great field that God has called him and others to, likely. You know what? That's a tremendous opportunity that God has given. But God says never forget that that too is a place where he can be exalted when his name can be heralded. I think even about two months ago, we had a friend come from Japan to visit our little church plant. I found out he was a Christian. He was actually a relative of a guy on the team. And I said, share your testimony. Share your testimony this morning with us. Tell us what God did to draw you to, to, draw you to himself. This Japanese man, his name was Ken. He said one day he had a checkup at the dentist. He was in a very depressed time in his life without any sense of hope, direction. He went and sat down in the dentist's seat there. The dentist began to work, opened his mouth, and began to put his tools in and began also to do his real work, his, the hard work of the gospel. And before they had finished that check of doing all the work in the mouth, Ken had all kinds of thoughts banging around in his mind regarding what will happen in the future. Where is my standing before Christ? The dentist said, let's get together for lunch. They met for lunch later that day. At the end of that time, Ken knelt down. He embraced Christ as his Savior. What happened? A faithful ambassador for Christ, who happened to be a dentist, was one who spoke forth the gospel message, representing Christ. And God saved Ken. You know, each of us, each of us have people that God has put in our lives, whether they're friends, whether they're neighbors, whether they're fellow students, whether they're fellow workers. And God says, you know what? I want you to be a faithful ambassador who speaks for me, who radiates that message to those that don't know me. The question for us as ambassadors is, will we tell them? Will we speak? Will we represent him? I want to help you this morning. I want to help you think through what you can do as an ambassador. And then following the next training hour, we're going to even get more into this about speaking forth the gospel boldly. But let's now think about what steps of faith and obedience can we take? If you're saying, you know what, that's my desire. My desire truly is Christ. I want to please him. And I want to be more effective and faithful as an ambassador. What can I do? Let me share some ways that you can begin immediately. First of all, pray. Pray fervently before God, for the unbelievers that God has placed in your life. Make a list of them. Bring them before God. Beg of God to use you to share that good news with them. Pray faithfully for the unbelievers that God has given to you in your life. Number two, commit to memory. Commit to memory key scriptures that embrace, that share, that really crystallize the gospel. For example, verse 21, right here in our, in our passage. This will be one, if you haven't memorized already, you can memorize today or this week and begin to share with other people. The most powerful way to represent Christ is simply to share His Word. Just share it. Tell them it. Open the Word and share that with them. We do that all the time by God's grace and in His strength in the Czech Republic. 
We open the Bible and say, you know what, you've got to read this. You've got to see this. Verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That embraces the message of salvation. Memorize it and share that with others. Number three, share your testimony with others and introduce Christ in every conversation that God gives you opportunity. Introduce Christ. Introduce Him as your friend. Tell them, I've got to tell you about my greatest friend. And make Him known. Initiate in those conversations Christ. Number four, use your home, your uh, wherever, your dorm room, wherever you are, use that place as an opportunity, as a lighthouse for Christ. And maybe mark on your calendar at the beginning of every month, God, who would you want us to actually have over? Who would you want me to have over to spend time with here? Plan for that. Plan specific times you can begin having believers actually over to share the gospel with them. Number five, proclaim with much boldness and zeal the gospel message. It's in verse 21, or verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ. You know what? Being an ambassador isn't just saying, you know, here it is, take it or leave it, that's the message. You've heard it now. We're to be those that beg, that implore others to understand the issues. I think we need to have a tremendous growing sense of zeal as we represent Christ to those that God is having us, allowing us to share with. We need to take steps forward. Each of us can grow, can't we? In our passion for Christ and our making Him known as His ambassadors. And I want to, in closing, to share with you about this. And we can anticipate this year, 2003, that as we grow in our foundation and our desire for Christ as, that, as our supreme ambition, that God will bless our lives incredibly. And God will make our making Him known even more effective, being His ambassadors. And we will look back at the end of this year and say, God, we bless you. We bless you for how you've used us, how you've amazed us, with what you've done in our lives personally and then through our lives as your ambassador. Christian, look back as a motivation at what Christ has done for you. Remember that supreme love. Look forward to the coming judgment when you will stand before Christ and that supreme evaluation. And then lastly, look outward. Look outwardly to those around you to whom you can share the gospel of Christ. Let's stand together and let's pray and let's ask God to help us be those that will be doers of His Word this morning. Let's pray together. As we close in prayer, would you just talk to God personally? Share with Him your heart's desire for Christ as your greatest ambition. Would you tell God about your desire to invest this year in things that will honor Christ, that will bring pleasure to Him? Tell God again of your great thankfulness for what Christ has done for you, for His great love for you. Tell Him that, please.
Would you commit yourself now to living for Christ's honor even this year? Ask God to show you areas that you need to submit to Him. Now, thank God that He has made you His ambassador. Would you ask God to help you be faithful, to be obedient, to represent Him where He has you and the opportunities He's given? Blessed Father, we thank You for the privilege of being those that have been supremely loved by Christ. Oh God, may it be that we would each in our own lives be so impelled to do Your will and to live all out for Christ's glory because of understanding this more deeply. Father, as we look forward to that day when we will stand before You, help us to more deeply invest in those things that are of eternal worth even now. God, thank You for making us Your representatives, for leaving us with the supreme task of sharing with others all around us of the One who has saved us. Father, we long to be faithful to You. We long to live with a great sense of thankfulness and obedience for the praise of Your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.